0: And welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. The COVID-19 pandemic is rolling around the world, extinguishing expected futures and opening up the possibilities of different ones. At FuturePod, we have decided to speak to our previous guests and ask them what this moment in time means for them and more importantly to all of us. If you would like to know more about the guests we speak to, then please check out their earlier interviews on the website futurepod.org. Today, our guest is Paul Higgins. Welcome back to FuturePod, Paul.
1: Thanks, Peter. Good to be here.
0: So, Paul, where are you in the world and what's happening around you? Well,
1: I'm in Essen uh, and in, Essendon in uh, Melbourne, so uh, Victoria, Australia, for those international listeners. And, you know, what's happening really here in Australia, in Melbourne in particular, I guess, is a a third level of uh, restrictions and lockdowns on people's uh, capacity to move around, meet other people, those sort of things. And I think part of that's been driven by the government seeing a lot of people sort of flouting the initial requirements or requests to reduce uh, transmission. And I've certainly seen a, a fair difference in the last few days in people's attitudes, just going out, walking the dog and those sort of things. There's a lot more active distancing than there was even sort of five or six days ago so we're in the middle of that a lot of uh people being made uh unemployed or being stood down so big economic impacts uh and the government (coughs) pouring unheard of amounts of money uh, if you think about the historical context you know 130 billion dollars yesterday announced of government stimulus so we're in a fast-moving and fluid environment.
0: Yeah, we certainly are. Yes, yes. You know, the economics of what governments can and can't do when when things like this happen, they sort of tear up the rule book don't they? As to what they can and can't do.
1: Yeah, and if you know, if I put up a scenario for people six months ago to say the government will be spending two hundred billion dollars and will probably go into a deficit of a hundred billion dollars next financial year, people would have would have been probably locked up, I think. Yeah. We're that far from uh, where we were six
0: months ago. So, Paul, I'm interested. You developed a set of scenarios which you entitled "Scenarios for COVID for Organizational Strategy," and you put them on your website and made them freely available. You want to talk about what what sort of motivated you to sort of yeah you know, do that public service, and what's you know and what's behind the scenarios and how people use them.
1: Uh, Yeah, well, there's basically two things. I mean, there's this balance between what's a public service and what sort of marketing myself in that process, given uh, some a fair bit of my forward work has dropped off for conferences and workshops and those sort of things. But I felt I had to make some sort of contribution to uh, people trying to navigate their way through. And what I was experiencing in talking to clients and other people was that, a lot of people were either in firefighting mode, you know, what do we got to do in the next three hours or the next day, yep. or were in, you know, had strong views about, you know, this is what's going to happen for the next whatever period. <laughs> and, I, you know, generally in my work, it's about helping people try to navigate their way to a future. So how do you imagine, you know, multiple possible futures and paths to those futures and, and build strategy which is adaptable to, to change? So we're just trying to translate that into what I prepared in relation to the COVID scenarios, looking at a a relatively simple, you know, if you read them, but a set of uh, varying scenarios that gave people different pictures about what might happen, and the intent is that people download them, use them, and go, you know, what if this happens in six months? What would I do in my organisational strategy uh, to deal with that? So not that it will happen, but that it might happen, and therefore what would I do? And so getting people into that navigation space and thinking about those things and also using them as sort of a wind tunnel test sort of system. So if you've got a strategy and we're building one at the moment for a for a client, can it be successful in as many possible forward scenarios as possible? Yep. If you can build something like that, then you have to navigate less and, and we're building a solution for someone right now uh, to do that. So it's that balance between finding Verticom is some sort of magic solution that works regardless. And, you know, nothing works regardless, 100%, obviously, but uh, versus, you know, how how am I flexible and change, but how do I do it in a way that I anticipate what that might look like rather than just reacting in the moment?
0: Like all good strategy and scenario work, you often have to get quite creative about how a future might land. Um, Do you want to talk about the... um, the work you are doing with your wife's uh, with your wife's immigration business, and the kind of idea that popped up when you were looking at in relation to the scenarios.
1: Yeah, although she won't like you calling her my wife. Because apologies, uh, your partner. We were supposed to get married last weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, Joy runs uh, an immigration business, which is an interesting business to be in right now because they do they work with people to help them get visas for a variety of things. You know. Um, skilled skilled migrants coming in to do particular jobs partner visas permanent residency all those sort of things and obviously uh, where we are in relation to the the travel bans the quarantine etc is having an effect on those at all sorts of levels that people might not even think of so you know partner visas come from people dating and meeting each other they've arrived in the country uh, and we've got two things happening people aren't arriving in the country and secondly they're not dating at the same time so you know we're anticipating for example that while there may be quite a few of those still going because you know people met each other three or six months ago or whatever uh, in six months time that that part of the business might dry up completely for a significant period of time so we're just trying to work through we're doing just basically looking at the scenarios we are prepared and then going what does it, uh, an individual customer or an individual visa's customer journey look like in all of those scenarios and trying to mention that what that might be so for example we put an extra one in a couple of days ago that was about you know what does it look like if australia squashes down virus transmission but is unable to eliminate the virus which i think is i think it's highly unlikely we'll eliminate the virus at this point it's more likely to be a sort of a low level of ongoing cases in some for another uh, what happens at the border do people come in, you know, does immunity immunity test delay to come in and move around freely? Quarantine, is quarantine applied for the next, uh, for 14 days, forced into hotels for the next 18 months, if we get a vaccine in 18 months? How does that apply to a tourist versus a skilled visa person? It increases the costs of someone bringing in a skilled person on a visa, Therefore, are they more likely to pay more for an agent to help them with the applications because they got more at risk of uh, not being able to maintain that visa? There's a whole range of questions which flow from that.
0: You put a post on LinkedIn which which raised the interesting notion that people who, are, who have been exposed to the virus and actually have antibodies could actually have something that could make them attractive as a, uh, as a potential uh, immigrant.
1: Well, that and also domestically. So imagine at the moment that you want to get an electrician or a plumber or a cleaner or it doesn't matter who, but to come and do work for you. Yeah. If someone could actually prove that they'd already been infected and were immune, I think the value of that person in the the economy in the next sort of 18 months goes up quite considerably. Particularly, you know, we're we're talking about services for elderly people who have pre-existing conditions. There's a whole range of things from that. Now, there are questions around that about, you know, do we have carrier status? Uh, how long does immunity last? There's a whole range of things like that. But those are the sort of things I think we need to be discussing and thinking about because people's focus now seems to be almost completely on, you know, social distancing and, and bashing down the level of transmission, which I'm not disagreeing with. I am actually fundamentally do agree with. 1% of Australia's population is 125,000 people. Sorry, 250,000 people. Got that number wrong half a percent is 125,000 people. We're nowhere near those numbers yet, but if we've got 125,000 people infected over the next six months, and I, I hope we don't, but that means we've still got 99.5% of the population which is not immune. Yeah. That is essentially still as, a, as susceptible as we were three months ago, but all 195 or 193 or 197 countries, depending on how you define them in the oh. world, are now virus sources for, for for bringing in infection and spreading infection in the community, as well as the domestic transmission. So it has a lot of implications about what uh, what travel uh, looks like over the next period of time.
0: I'm not gonna ask you to try and tell me what you think the future is gonna look like, because clearly at the moment we've got no idea, but how the future is kind of to sort of emerge, I mean, you would, i imagine still be paying attention to to certain things i mean you've already foreshadowed for example the fact that we're probably looking at a a hitherto unthought of level of public debt you know circulating in the economy and probably even a growing level of public debt what other kinds of things are just kind of on your scanning of interest that you while you are open you're also looking for things that could be emerging
1: ah oh, well there's a whole range of things obviously if we talk just about the pandemic stuff, then obviously, you know, vaccine availability is one that uh, completely changes the game if it was early or delayed. At the moment, I'm cautioning people because of my veterinary background and experience with disease outbreaks, et cetera. The, you know, science, just because you throw 20 times as much money at something doesn't mean you can do it 20 times as fast. Yeah. And so I think there are still some significant uh, issues around vaccine development. And I hope I hope it gets done a lot quicker than we think, but uh, you know, I think it's a reasonable expectation to think it might be eighteen months away. Again, you know, you can come up with forty different scenarios about how that works, and and in that then becomes you know you can't say we produce a vaccine which requires two doses. Uh, if we think globally, that's you know we're talking about fifteen billion doses of vaccine. Yeah, who does that get distributed to? To the countries that put the money in a more wealthy do that get that first uh do we vaccinate everyone over 70 with pre-existing conditions globally before we do that or do individual countries just say no we made this you can all get stuffed until um until we vaccinate and protect our own people uh the other thing i think is that you know while we're all concentrating to an extent on and rightly so on our you know what's happening with us in our own country i really fear for and i'm looking for signs about What's, what might be emerging or happening in places like Pakistan or, uh, you know, particularly places in Africa or, you know, rural India, et cetera, that don't have the systems uh, for testing, contract tracing, treatment, etc., and may evolve into huge humanitarian problems just at a time when, you know, the countries that are capable of reaching out and helping those situations are, are too focused on their own situation. So, Uh, There's a whole range of things that flow out of that. You've got, you know, the oil price and where it's gone to. I mean, last week in America, wholesalers were paying people to take petrol away. And the oil price has huge geopolitical considerations for countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, like Russia, uh, et cetera, who are very dependent on those income streams. So there's a whole range of sort of external and third and fourth and fifth order consequences here that we have to try and think through.
0: Yeah, the Saudis weren't being weren't being super kind in in halving the oil price overnight. No,
1: they weren't they weren't being they weren't they were trying to do a strategy which I don't really understand myself, but you know, that that's sort of been taken away from them now as well. So there's all those sorts of things. And then, you know, the longer term implications of there's a massive experiment going on, obviously, with work from home. We don't need a very large percentage of people to or companies to go, you know what, we could do a lot more of that uh, because we've been forced into doing it and it's actually been a lot easier than we thought to actually have impacts on the public transport system and the the road system in terms of people movements. And I think the other thing I'm trying to keep an eye on is what is the sort of social-cultural differences in terms of how it's affected the response and the results of the response in various countries. So why are we seeing differences between South Korea and China and Germany, and Italy and Spain, et cetera, and how might that, what might the implications be for a how, how we act and how people behave when restrictions are lifted? Uh, and there's some early information coming out from China about that in terms of what's happening. And so I saw a, a tweet stream this morning of a, someone reporting themselves just about their own personal experience in China saying, uh, China is unlocking uh, some of this business activity, but what they're observing, and you know, it's anecdotal, is that while business is returning partly into action, people are still sort of avoiding social situations. So yeah. they are seeing, you know, doing work and business and getting the economy going as a almost a, a public service or a necessary thing, but they're avoiding social stuff. So what does that mean for the economy? What does it mean for restaurants, for so you know all those venues that are obviously struggling very much now in terms of terms of you know economic damage, and how is that different in China than it is in Australia versus Sweden versus South Korea versus Pakistan? Yeah. So there's all those sort of things going through my head, and we're trying to keep an eye out for.
0: You and I were talking when the government is close to taking the restrictions off, they have to seriously think through whether they do open the things or they do, or or they leave them on for longer
1: yeah if you look at what's happening in south korea right now they had a an outbreak that sort of got away from them a little bit but they managed to control fairly quickly and they're now running roughly and this is since 12th of march about 100 cases a day and it bounces around and you know some of those bounces are due to testing differences that, you know you can't quite get accurate data obviously obviously but they're seeming to manage it in that way. Now, if you want to do that, it's dependent on the sort of mechanisms that you're going to use and the social responses to them, et cetera. But what is a reasonable number? And can you manage that number anyway in different societies? Uh, If you think about 100 cases a day in Australia, Mm. that's only 35,000 cases over a year. Now, That's still a lot of people and people at risk and a whole range of issues. I'm not downplaying those. But, you know, if you add 35,000 cases onto an initial caseload of 15,000 and we get to that, that's 50,000 people. That's a tiny, tiny proportion of the overall population that we assume to be immune. uh, And we shouldn't assume that 100% at this point either. What does that mean for movements and people? And, you know, how does it apply in the Northern Territory different than it does in inner Melbourne versus new york versus new delhi or Mm. uh, all those sorts of things and now we've already seen that when governments say we're going to go into lockdown over various things people flee and people fleeing percentage of them are infected that means they spread the disease wherever they're going so it's a fast-moving fluid and complex environment and i don't i don't envy governments in this process i mean australia lots of governments but australia I, i know a bit better obviously is is well prepared for these sort of things in terms of training and systems, etc. But uh, this is uh, you know as big as we'll see probably in our lifetime, hopefully. So it's a it's a it's a very fast moving and complex environment to try and deal with.
0: What are you? I mean, just uh, Paul Higgins, citizen of the world. I mean, or probably not. He's probably just a citizen of Essendon at the moment. I mean, what are you kind of thinking in terms of the impacts this will have on you going forward?
1: Uh, well, I'm actually—I've seen uh, him mainly a, uh, a citizen of the uh, Home Office in our backyard, more than anything else, in the last bit of while. But I guess three things: one, not a lot of what what I do has changed. The, the I obviously go to clients and and go to conferences and do presentations and workshops, so that's shut off. I'm anticipating a situation where there's going to be less. Uh, less of those events for me to participate in the future in terms of presenting at conferences or larger-scale company offsites or things like that. And, you know, O'Reilly Media in the US has already shut down their their event business and they're saying they're not bringing it back. It's 100% gone. Yeah. Uh, so there's all those things. To some extent, I'm, from an economic point of view, I'm actually reasonably well-placed in that the combination of my veterinary experience, experience in exotic disease preparedness, uh, being a futurist for the last twenty years, etc., puts me at an intersection of understanding of stuff that actually produces work now, and I've, I've been very busy the last two weeks, and we're anticipating that will actually get busier rather than less. So, you know, for the for the next twelve or eighteen months, that will probably drive the the work that I do, and. Push me away a little bit from thinking about you know what does the five or ten or fifteen year future looks like because I'm more interested in helping people and particularly communities, uh, not for profit organisations and things like that and trying to trying to do stuff which is purpose related rather than uh, straight commercial related I guess and helping those people navigate through the you know the next period of time uh, is going to be that focus more than anything else.
0: Yeah, because it is. I mean quite rightly people have been shocked by the the extent of change and the and the pace of change the period you know which then could roll on for another 18 months 2 years of uncertainty and moving between you know lockdown open up in some ways the turbulence is actually going to probably even be greater in the in the period coming hence people need to be more be actually better and more flexible navigators than ever before
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of people out there who think, you know, we'll just get past the next sort of three or four weeks or two months and everything will settle down again. I just don't think that's the case. I hope it is, but I don't think it's the case. But So people need to sort of take that into account. On the personal front, uh, you know, how I sort of cope with stress or the extra work and stuff is really just, you know, maintaining, trying to maintain as much as possible exercise regimes and, uh, you know, healthy eating stuff sleeping although that the sleeping part's not working all that well at the moment because uh, if if I get five hours sleep these days and my brain snaps on I'm done sort of thing so I've had a couple of 3.30am starts in the last three days and you know maintaining the sort of social connections particularly around family so I have two elderly parents who are both in their 80s with pre-existing conditions and sure my partner has uh, two in the 70s which are both have pre-existing conditions so we're trying to do things like, you know, once a week now for each of those families, we're having a, a family, uh, grandparents, uh, children, grandchildren, one-hour hookup. Yep. We're reaching out into our own community, you know, just in our street to go. Uh, so we've already, before this latest lockdown stuff had got on for more vulnerable people, we'd already sort of approached uh, two people in our street who we knew, um, you know, were uh either living by themselves, one person living by themselves uh, and one elderly couple that lives next door to say, you know, if you need anything, we can go out and get stuff for you, we can do things for you, we can do your garden, you know, whatever it may be. Funnily enough, the person that lives down the road who lives by herself was a little affronted because she thought I'd come, she's in her 60s and she thought I'd come to say, you know, you're elderly and you do you need help? But we got past that and uh, had a really good discussion. So, you know, that's just one thing I think that people can do is go reach out to two or three people, you know, 500 metres in either direction from your house if you can and do something for your community in that way. Because I think the one of the best things to help people deal with their own sort of emotional trauma, grief, mental health in these circumstances is you know, doing one or two things to help someone else is the best way to deal with some of those things.
0: Yeah, I agree with that, Paul. Look, thank It's been great to talk. I will have with your podcast, there'll be a link to those scenarios if people want to go and have a look at them. And you do have some videos and so forth there to help people as to how they might use them. Um, but thanks for taking some time out to share your thoughts and ideas with the Pod community.
1: Thanks, Peter. It's always a pleasure. And you know, the, as I said, those scenarios are free to download and we're upgrade or updating them every sort of three or four days as well. So there's a list people can sign up to get notified of updates, and we won't use that for anything else besides just updates for the scenarios and webinars. So, if people want to do that, they can uh, they can keep up to date with what we're doing. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Betty.
0: This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.